Hi, it's Mark. So, funny story. A few hours after I recorded this podcast episode, news broke that the Orioles are calling up Colton Kowser. So, that's pretty cool, but this episode does not have me reacting to it because Mike Elias does not believe in doing things conveniently for my schedule. So, let's hope that that brings exciting things for the Orioles and that we can talk about that in the next episode. But until then, please enjoy what I originally recorded for July the 5th, 2023, knowing nothing about Kowser. Thanks. Good morning, Birdland. I'm Mark Brown. I've been blogging about the Orioles for more than a decade on CamdenChat.com and waiting for them to win the World Series for my whole life. Thanks for listening today. Let's talk some Orioles. It is now July the 5th, 2023. The Orioles are 49-35 and 35 on the season after an 8-4 loss to the New York Yankees yesterday. Kyle Gibson gave up four earned runs in six innings pitched, in part thanks to issuing four walks, although the run that ended up breaking a 3-3 tie in the game only scored because of a Cedric Mullins mental mistake where he threw the ball to the wrong base and allowed Glaber Torres to score from first base on a two-out single, which is honestly pretty silly, but that was what happened. And then Nick Vespi, Brian Baker, and Bruce Zimmerman combined to allow an additional four runs, so that got to what ultimately became an 8-4 to four loss. In the game, the Orioles' batters actually outhit the Yankees by an 8-7 to seven margin. However, the Orioles were only 1-10 for 10 in situations with a runner in scoring position. That's also pretty bad. Although, really, even if the Orioles had a couple more hits, they probably would have still lost. But Maybe it would have been a little bit less annoying. No, probably not. It's always annoying when the Orioles lose to the Yankees, especially when a number of dumb things happen. So the Orioles have now lost four out of five games since the last time we spoke. They've lost six of their last seven overall and 11 of their last 18 games. And over that 18-game stretch, they have scored no more than three runs on 11 separate occasions. So they didn't lose all 11 of those games. There are a couple wins sprinkled in there, but they're not doing well when they're scoring three or fewer runs, which no team is going to do well when it's scoring three or fewer runs. That's, you know, that's just kind of the way it goes. So the Orioles are now down to a 95 win pace on the season. I'm still taking the under. I'm sorry. Uh, We are getting close to where I might stop taking the under. Although if they keep losing in a row to get down there, I'm going to be feeling a lot more glum. But anyway, uh, there are five teams that have beaten the Orioles to the 50-win mark. So for a while, if the Orioles had a couple bad games, you could be like, well, you know, they've still got the second-best record in Major League Baseball, whatever. Well, they don't now. Now they're at, I think, um, I think fifth-best. They have a better winning percentage than one of the teams that's at 50 already or something like that. So for me, really, the Orioles are kind of in uh, what really feels like the downward spiral right now. Uh, A lot like the 1994 Nine Inch Nails album that, fun fact, was recorded in the same house in which Sharon Tate and others were murdered by uh, members of the Manson family. So, yeah, that's about what the Orioles feel like right now. And, uh, you know, in the Wikipedia article for that album, a description of it is that, quote, it was a concept concept album detailing the self-destruction of a man. End quote. So, you know, are the 2023 Orioles right now a concept album detailing the self-destruction of a baseball team? Eh, maybe that's a little bit dramatic, but they're getting there and it doesn't feel like a lot of fun. 
Oh, and by the way, The Downward Spiral, you might know a couple of songs from it if you do. Uh, The one song you might know is Closer, which is famous for having the lyric, I want to F you like an animal. Uh, Not so relevant to the 2023 Orioles, but maybe lyrics elsewise in the song that are maybe less known is where the singer says, my whole existence is flawed, or... I broke apart my insides. I've got no soul to sell. Yes, that sounds a bit more like the last three weeks or so of the 2023 Orioles. Oh, and also on that album is a song later covered and made even more famous by Johnny Cash called Hurt. And in that song, among the lines are, I will let you down. I will make you hurt. Yes, Orioles, you have been doing that for the entirety of my lifetime. So that's not just limited to the last few weeks of 2023. But you know what? I'm still a fan anyway. I'm always going to be a fan. I just try and manage my expectations, you know. But we all got our hopes up when they were on a 100-win pace. That was never going to last. Now we just got to see where things settle down. And I mean, the the problem is it's not very hard to see where the problems are. The Orioles, over their last 15 days, this is their team batting split. A 219 average a 296 slugging percentage, a 359, excuse me, a 296 on base percentage, 359 slugging percentage. So that is the fifth worst OPS among Major League Baseball teams over the last 15 days. And the pitching in the same time frame of 5.20 ERA is seventh worst among all MLB teams. So how do you get there? Well, Cedric Mullins has not been any good since returning from his injury. So that's one problem. It's only been 10 games for him. So, you know, that's a small sample size, but it's not a very helpful sample size. Jorge Mateo now has a 562 OPS over the last 30 days, and it's not good for longer beyond that. Um, Tuesday's starter, Kyle Gibson, a 6.38 ERA over his last seven games. Wednesday's starter, Dean Kramer, a 5.63 ERA over his last seven games. So both of those really need to get better. Uh, The only internal option for the Orioles rotation, it feels to me, is Grayson Rodriguez, who is pitching uh, on Tuesday for Norfolk. That's happening after I'm recording this episode. I hope it is a good outcome. But, you know, we saw him get absolutely shelled in the majors. He has done well in most of his starts since going back down to Norfolk. Hopefully he continues to do well enough that they bring him back. That would be a nice, nice internal addition if he can come back and, you know, do better. Uh, In the bullpen, I don't really think there's really any new internal options. It's just a matter of getting the guys who are pitching here already to do better or to kind of ride out their rough patches. Uh, If, you know, maybe it's pitchers who are better than, their last few weeks indicate. And, you know, as far as the offense, like for position players, what your own, you know, the only kind of prospect uh, addition that hasn't been made among guys with like a good track record at AAA Norfolk is Colton Kowser. And, you know, if somebody in the outfield gets hurt or if uh, Aaron Hicks like falters, which he's already doing a little bit, although he did homer, on Tuesday to get some revenge against the Yankee fans who've been booing him for years. So that was nice. And I hope he can continue doing that for a couple of years, but yeah, Colton Kowser, it's going to take like an injury or, uh, you know, somebody really taking a swan dive into the tank that the Orioles can actually shuffle out of the picture. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's not an automatic. You could maybe have 
a recovered Ryan Mountcastle if he plays better than he did over the uh, time he was playing for the Orioles so far this year. We know that he's capable of better in his big league career, although we don't know that he's capable of better necessarily in a year in which Baltimore exists in left field at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So, yeah, I don't know what's going to end up happening once his, uh, you know, the Orioles decide his rehab is done. He could be optioned if they aren't happy with the results. They could just send him down and not have him, um, not have him come back right away. So we'll see, I guess, in another week or so what will end up happening with him. And for one more internal addition, I guess the Orioles could give another chance to Joey Ortiz, which they seem like they've really been resisting so far. Uh, They've just not given him an extended look in the way that they seem like they're now doing for Jordan Westberg. I don't really know why that is. So, you know, we're just going to have to see how it plays out. Uh, We the the trade deadline is August the 1st. So the Orioles have between now and then to make external additions by, you know, maybe trading prospects for a starting pitcher, or I would be less excited if they trade for a reliever, but although it seems like maybe they should. Hopefully, if that occurs, they will give up uh, ultimately a less quality future big leaguer as when they traded Eduardo Rodriguez for Andrew Miller. Rodriguez, by the way, is one of the possible starting pitching additions at the deadline this year. So I guess we'll see if he's going to end up having a reunion. That would be kind of weird. But, you know, it's just going to be we're going to have to see what they're going to do with all of these prospects to get help that is available for a price that is worth paying. And it's like, you know, who is really expendable out of the group down there, you know? Given the treatment of Ortiz by the Orioles, maybe they aren't as excited by him. Uh, Other infielders like Connor Norby or Cesar Prieto, of course, those aren't the top-end guys, so those aren't going to get you whatever the top of the market is. I mean, outfielders other than Colton Kowser, maybe even Colton Kowser is not untouchable in the right deal. I don't know. I would certainly hope if he is traded, that would be for more than just a couple-month rental. Same with Heston Kerstad, who has been doing very well for Norfolk as well. So yeah, I mean, maybe it's going to be an external addition that kind of sparks things. Uh, Certainly in Birdland, we have examples a decade apart in 2012 when the Orioles called up Manny Machado. That certainly felt like the spark that got them going better places. It wasn't so much Machado's hitting as it was his defense suddenly stabilizing the entire infield defense in a way that didn't exist before. And, you know, 2022, calling up Adley Rutschman was not immediate turnaround in quite the same way as the 2012 call-up of Manny Machado, but certainly once Rutschman got his footing, the team started to turn things around, and, you know, it was a full year of, what, the the first 162 games for the Orioles after Rutschman's call-up was, uh, I think, 96 and 66, pretty freaking good, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if we're going to be able to get quite the same spark this year since, you know, the Orioles already have made I think the biggest prospect call-up we're likely to get in the short term here is Jordan Westberg. Unfortunately, that's arrived in the middle of a team-wide swoon. So it's going to take something else, maybe just players playing more to the talent they're capable of playing. And then, uh, you know, things will start going better. I don't know. Maybe they're going to need to add some more guys from the outside. Uh, As I've said before on this show, I'm honestly really nervous about it. But we've got another few weeks to go before the deadline 
Although it is possible a trade could be made, we've already seen at least one trade be struck when uh, the Royals traded reliever Eraldis Chapman to the Rangers. They honestly got what looked to me like a pretty light return back, but that's for a reliever rental. The Orioles probably will have to pay a higher price if it's a starting pitcher. And, you know, if they get a player who is controllable for next season as well, or maybe even two seasons beyond now, that would also cost them more. So Mike Elias, I'm sure, is engaged in conversations, probably over text. That seems to be how things are done about trade scenarios. And, you know, we're going to have to find out. I mean, we'll, we'll find out probably when the deal is struck. Uh, these sorts of things don't tend to leak in the Michael Elias era of the Orioles. So, you know, it'll be it'll be by surprise. And in the meantime, I will be constantly vigilant as much as possible on Twitter for as long as Twitter makes it possible to be, you know, vigilant for trade news there. So, yeah. Our mailbag for today is empty. If you have an Orioles opinion you would like to get out into the world or a question you'd like me to answer in a future episode, you can email camdencastpod at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has written in so far. I will be right back after a message from a Fans First Sports Network sponsor. All right, so let's get into our prospect segment of the episode. So for today, instead of talking about an unheralded prospect uh, before a revisited prospect, as I've been doing for the last few shows, uh, I'm going to do a little mini draft preview today and also on Friday's episode since the first round of the draft is going to be on Sunday night. So we are getting really close to finding out who the Orioles are going to take at number 17. But before that, let's talk about our revisited prospect, and we've already mentioned him on this episode. The number seven on the composite prospect list I posted to CamdenChat.com is Joey Ortiz. So let's look back on his season so far. So he was OPSing 889 with the Norfolk Tides when the Orioles called him up for one series against the Tigers in April. He has played sporadically in two other stints with the team a total MLB line of a 212 batting average, a 206 on base percentage, the rare OBP below batting average because he has drawn zero walks, and a 242 slugging percentage. So that's an isolated slugging of .030, which is pretty bad because he only has one extra base hit, which is a double. Now, that's only over 34 plate appearances because the Orioles just never gave him an extended look. I don't know why. Uh, since rejoining AAA, he had five straight multi-hit games. And again, Norfolk's game is happening after I'm recording here on Tuesday. So hopefully he continues that multi-hit game streak. For the season overall, he's got a 992 OPS with the Tides, has hit five home runs in 37 games. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know why the Orioles did not have uh, Ortiz play more over Jorge Mateo, once it was clear that Mateo was really struggling, he's now like two months into just a brutal slump. It just seems like the Orioles are less high on Ortiz than they are on Jordan Westberg. And, you know, I don't know why that is. Maybe they think Westberg has more power potential at the major league level than Ortiz will end up being able to show. Uh, you know, it, it's um, the, as Michael Elias said, and I've brought up on this show, they consider things far beyond what's on the back of baseball cards, which is fair. They have a lot more data than I do, but that does make it hard sometimes to understand their thought process. So Ortiz, I don't know. I don't know if we'll still have, be talking about him as an Orioles prospect in a month's time. He might be the trade bait. Uh, I guess we'll see. 
So yeah, Sunday, day one of the draft, and the Orioles are picking at number 17 in the first round this year because they didn't stink last year, which is nice. That means that we had more fun watching the Orioles. That's a lot more fun than when they got two number one picks and one number two pick over the last four drafts before this. So, but the thing about that is, and really even when the Orioles picked number one or even number two in the draft, um, my basic philosophy for the draft is this. You don't want to get too emotionally invested in possible draft picks because the Orioles are going to draft at most one of them, and that player may not end up being any good anyway. So you, I just think it's not worth the emotional energy to get too far down the road of, oh, you really get excited about this player or that player. Uh, you know, at number one even, I mean, the Orioles in 2019, they did the obvious and they took Adley Rutschman. But the second time they had the number one last year, they surprised everyone, took Jackson Holiday. That's certainly working out well so far. It was not uh, the guy who everyone was most excited for on draft night. And, you know, when they picked number two, I think a lot of people wanted the Orioles to choose Austin Martin. They did a swerve and they picked Heston Kerstad instead. At the moment now, that one looks like a pretty good pick, too. So, yeah, I mean, the the draft class and, and the Orioles aren't at the top to even worry about, OK, the top five consensus prospects and then things are less certain after that. The possible one two LSU duo of outfielder Dylan Cruz and right handed pitcher Paul Skeens, you know, the Orioles were nowhere near bad enough to have good odds of getting in that top two. Uh, I, you know, there was a team that jumped up a bit. The, the Twins were not terribly bad, and they jumped up to, like, number five into the lottery with a small percentage chance. So, you know, it's good that the Orioles were not bad enough to have a 18% chance for the number one pick or a 50% chance for the top three. You know, I hope that they don't anytime soon. But so, like, you know, especially in the lottery era, like, nothing is guaranteed even if you have a major tank job. You aren't, you know, you have a coin flip of even getting in the top three. So with that in mind... Here's two names that I'm I'm thinking about. Uh, they they are scouting reports that I read uh, as far as like reasonable targets at number 17 seem fun. And so here's my two guys for today. One is a shortstop. His name is Arjun Nimola. He is from Strawberry Crest High School, which is located near Tampa, Florida. And the other is a first baseman slash right-handed pitcher. Bryce Eldridge from a little bit closer, in fact, a lot closer to Birdland, uh, James Madison High School in Northern Virginia. So Arjun Nimala, go to the search engine of your choice and put in ESPN Arjun Nimala, and that's A-R-J-U-N, last name N-I-M-M-A-L-A. There's a really interesting article written by ESPN prospect writer Kylie McDaniel about the unique prospect journey for Nimala. And some of that includes that he had family ties to India and still does. So he actually grew up going over to India in the summertime and playing cricket, really only started uh, focusing on baseball in high school. So he's kind of like the opposite of Jackson Holiday, who the Orioles chose last year in part because they were they liked the makeup of him uh, having always been around like baseball clubhouses since his dad was a major leaguer. I think until Holiday was like 13 years old or something like that. So it was, um, it, you know, it was a lifelong exposure for Holiday. And, you know, Nimala didn't even focus on this until like three or four years ago. Uh, other highlights in that article for me 
In the past offseason, Nimula trained with Major Leaguer Francisco Lindor, who is his favorite player. Uh, he is said to have, in the article, to have posted the best exit velocities in private workouts with teams, even in workouts where he was alongside of 21-year-old college players. So Nimula is only going to be 17 years old on the day the draft rolls around. He does not turn 18 until October, which means he's friendly to teams that like to use models to project out younger players. The Orioles are certainly believed to be one of these teams. One reason why I think he's not a crazy guy to think the Orioles might get to draft is that a recent mock draft by the Athletics' Keith Law had the Orioles picking Nimula at number 17. Although I will caution you again, a number of the other players, uh, or a number of other mock drafts have Nimula chosen before the uh, the Orioles get to draft. So he's maybe my hope for a long shot, I guess. And so Law's scouting report on Nimula is, quote, Nimala is a lean six foot one inches and already shows above average power with a strong swing. He is a rangy shortstop with good hands and a plus arm, certain to stay at the position long term. He falls short of other high school hitters by his present hit tool as he has more swing and miss than his peers. However, he offers the potential for that sort of high ceiling player over a slightly longer time frame. End quote. It sounds pretty exciting to me. You know, you, you wouldn't want that to be your guy you're taking at number five or whatever, which is why he's, unless there's a big surprise where some team decides to go like underslot for him, which could theoretically happen, I guess. Uh, that's why he's not going to be in the top five. But the middle of the first round at number 17, that might be a better value for a team like the Orioles to go ahead and choose Nimla. So I'm not going to get my hopes up too much, but I am going to get them up a little bit. And the same for the next guy, Bryce Eldridge, who's also popped up to uh, getting drafted by the Orioles in some earlier mock drafts out by some of the mainstream writers this draft season. Although I feel like that's happening less recently. I don't really know why. When I wrote about him on Camden Chat, I joked, at, really half-joking, because it would be nice for the Orioles to have a large adult son to smash home runs, because Eldridge is listed at six foot seven inches. And, you know, he is sort of a local player. Northern Virginia was Orioles territory when I was born, although it uh, is less so these days. Eldridge, he is a two-way player in high school, although the athletics law says that Eldridge probably should stay as a hitter, as a pro. And he says, quote, he, Eldridge offers a ton of upside as a power-hitting right fielder, end quote. Though he cautions players that tall do have risk in the long run of their careers, not very many uh, players that are that tall end up doing well beyond about age 32. And so, you know, another six foot seven player who's now in the major leagues, although he's on the injured list, is Aaron Judge. So that doesn't mean because Eldridge is the same height as Aaron Judge, he's going to have the same uh, power potential. But, you know, when you're talking about a tall dude who can crank massive dingers, that's that's your uh, that's your example. And Eldridge, I guess, if the Orioles drafted him, would be hoping he could follow in those footsteps. So, yeah, on the thought of how tall Eldridge is, like the tallest Orioles position player this season is the six foot four inch Ryan Mountcastle. So you're talking about adding another three inches on top of that. And you can see it's just it's not common to have anybody who's that tall as a position player. Uh, so Eldridge, although he's been playing first base in high school, Law thinks that's mostly to protect him from not having to do throws in from the outfield when he's also been doing a lot of pitching. So 
Law thinks that uh, he could make it as a right fielder, as I said in that scouting report. So in the mock drafts that I've seen, it seems more likely that Eldridge will be available when the Orioles choose uh, than Nimola when it comes around to number 17 on Sunday night. So yeah, those are two guys I'm thinking about for today. I will do a couple more in Friday's episode. Maybe the Orioles will actually draft one of the four guys I talk about, or maybe they will make me look silly by going in a completely different direction. It wouldn't be the first time, and I'm sure that it wouldn't be the last. So that's all that I have got for today. If you're enjoying this podcast, subscribe on your favorite platform and leave a rating or review and tell an Orioles fan in your life about the show. New episodes will be out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning, so I will see you again on Friday. Hopefully, we will have a couple of nice Orioles games to talk about as they play two more against the Yankees. Between now and then, you can leave a comment on camdenchat.com for me or anyone else on there. Uh, my name on in the comments is Eat More SK on Camden Chat. Good Morning Birdland is a Camden Cast production on the Fans First Sports Network. Until next time, go O's.